Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. Hey, y'all. I'm Elizabeth, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Adam and Tamarcus, and today we are joined by Hannah Nation, Managing Director at the Center for House Church Theology and Content Director for China Partnership. She's the editor of two books, Faithful Disobedience and Faith in the Wilderness, and we're going to talk about one of those books today. Hannah, thank you for being here with us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Um, Can you start us off by just sharing a little bit more about yourself and the work that you do? Yeah. Um, Well, I've worked with China really my whole adult life. Um, I first went in 2005 uh, as an undergrad in college and taught English and was just really blown away by what God's doing there and um in my opinion, the next chapter of church history that's unfolding there Mm. and really have just been working (laughs) with China ever since. I didn't anticipate that, but here I am today. But I work with, as you said, two organizations. The first is called China Partnership and CP works to train and resource and equip house church pastors in China. Um, It's Chinese-led, which is something we really love about the organization, though we do have uh, some American staff, which I'm a part of. Um, And then the Center for House Church Theology is pretty new. We launched just about two years ago. And basically, our vision is to bring the voices of those pastors that um, we're connected to within China to bring their voices out of China. Um, and to help share what they're saying and writing with the global church, Mm. believing that what the Lord is doing within China could really bless churches outside of China as well. So you can kind of think of CP maybe as um, giving to the churches in China and helping to resource them. And then the center is essentially um, China's gift to the rest of the world, sharing their wisdom um, with those outside of China. Yeah, no, I really love that. Uh, Here in the West, um, I think that we can think about Christianity just in America, Mm -hmm. and that's our whole Mm -hmm. perspective of it. And even Mm -hmm. as I was reading through this book and have looked at some of the other work that you all are doing, and just that our vision for what it means to be a Christian is informed by the global community. It's beautiful. um, Mm -hmm. And really strengthened by it, because I think there's a lot of beauty that we see of commonalities, but also unique perspectives that can strengthen us. And I know we're going to get into that today, but it just has been even in reading fun and good for my soul to have it stretched Mm. to Mm. see what my brothers and sisters on the other side of the globe are doing, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. how their faith Mm -hmm. is rooted in the same truths as mine is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to talk about the book. It, like you said, I was so encouraged and yeah. my eyes were opened and, you know, there's a million things mm-hmm. to say, but mm-hmm. the book Faith in the Wilderness is what we're going to be talking about. It's a compilation of nine different essays from Chinese pastors uh, on the themes of brokenness, redemption, and hope. 
And you share a little bit in the book about the backstory of how these writings came together. I would just love for our listeners to maybe be led into that conversation a little bit. How how <laughs> did these essays come together? What was your idea for the book? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this book, uh, the origins for this book really go back to the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a large uh, conference or convention that happens every several years for house church pastors. And this is a really important time for house church pastors to connect with each other and, and meet with each other. And the last one that took place happened in uh, end of January, beginning of February 2020. If anyone can remember back to that time before COVID. (laughs) And essentially, uh, we arrived on scene in Malaysia. The conference happened in Kuala Lumpur um, to discover that uh, this new thing was breaking out in China Wuhan had just been locked down and the organizers of the conference had to make an incredibly intense and difficult decision on whether the conference was going to proceed or not and how to proceed. They ended up deciding to proceed, but um, they asked those from uh, cities within China that were being shut down not to attend in order not to to potentially spread um, COVID beyond, you know, (laughs) where it was already spreading. Um, But what they decided to do was to live stream the conference uh, into uh, China. This is something that was pretty risky to do um, for those who may not be super aware of China. It has really one of the most restricted uh, internet uh, internets of our world. And um, there were lots of risks involved with uh, live streaming a conference into China, but they took the risks. And we know that tens of thousands of people um, watched these proceedings take place and the gospel was preached across China. After the conference ended, um, these same pastors basically decided that, you know, with all of the unknowns and the uncertainties of a pandemic breaking out, this was an absolutely vital time to preach the gospel evangelistically and to make Christ known in the darkness. And so they had this theme of let the light shine in the darkness And they decided they were going to continue to have these preaching events um, on weekends, which were they kind of were imagining old school tent revivals, (laughs) but kind of reimagined for the digital space and the digital world. And they would preach um, again at significant risk to themselves uh, because of the restrictions on the Internet in China. And again, we know that uh, just thousands of people across China locked in. And so when I heard all of this was happening, I thought, these are, this is incredible. I mean, this is an incredible thing that these pastors have this vision to evangelize in the midst of 2020 and everything that was happening in 2020. And so we asked for permission to start translating and um, we translated a lot more content than ended up in the book. Um, but we decided that these nine essays were 
the best uh, representation of mm-hmm. what had taken place across that year and, and also made sense in a book kind of as in a progression. And so, yeah, that's the story behind it. Um, one of the things that I love about them is how much uh, they're evangelistic, but also speak to those within the faith already, I think, in, in really remarkable ways. They do such a great job of speaking both uh, in a in a evangelistic sense and in a discipleship mm. sense. Wait, maybe before we jump too deep in, and I want to, but could you help set for our listeners who maybe are a little more unfamiliar with the landscape of Christianity in China? We're talking a lot about house churches, and so maybe just it, one thing that fascinated me was me trying to put myself in their shoes as I'm reading these essays. And so mm-hmm. contextually speaking, what is the mm-hmm. house church movement in China? Why why not establishment churches? What's the difference? Are there a bunch of buildings around? You know, like just kind of mm-hmm. help set the mm-hmm. scene for Christianity in China, the house church movement in general, and then maybe how that's seen by the government there. Yeah. Yeah. Very important question. Um, So it's a very common misunderstanding of the house churches to think of them still today as kind of secret hidden churches Mm -hmm. hiding in homes and not wanting to be seen. That definitely is uh, part of the history of the house church. So essentially, um, when the Communist Party came to power in the middle of the 20th century, um, it didn't abolish all religious practice. This is something that, you know, I myself thought for a really long time and only studying the history have realized really isn't a correct understanding. So when the communists came to power, what they did is establish a state church called the Three Self Patriotic Movement or the TSPM. And um, there are a lot of varying opinions on the state church. Um, We could get into that, but it would be a very long conversation. (laughs) (laughs) But the main thing to understand is that um, the state church really has the uh, governing structures and the Communist Party at the head, at the top, uh, in authority over the church. And those within the house churches pretty fundamentally disagree with this structure and disagree with having a... um, state entity or especially an atheistic uh, entity over the church and authority. And so they've refused to register with the state church. They've refused to enter in. And the end of the 20th century or mid 20th century leading up until sometime you could probably say in the 1990s, um, that involves significant persecution for the house churches uh, because they would not enter into the state church. So the house church comes out of this history of really intense persecution um, and kind of what we might think of with this like hidden church that's Mm. hiding. But especially as China began opening up at the turn of the century and just China changed so much going into the 21st century, the house churches really became less about that hiddenness and more about that unwillingness to enter into the state church. Mm. And so today in China, a house church can be a couple hundred people. Wow. It can be in a rented, you know, hotel 
office uh, ballroom or mm. meeting space. Um, I know house churches that rent their own commercial property. Um, some Many house churches do still meet in apartment buildings, but essentially they rent the apartment and kind of restructure it to be a church space instead of a individual's home. Mm. So when we think about the house church, we probably have a lot more in common with it today than we might think of it. Um, if you went to a house church today, it the service wouldn't necessarily feel fundamentally different from a lot of churches you might go to in the U.S., um, but it's their position towards the state church that really marks them as um, different than uh, this, the state church option within China. So That's really but helpful. The, yeah. And one of the things that I'll, I'll just quickly note, too, is that Christianity has just had this massive growth in China. Mm. And so, um, you know, the World Christian Encyclopedia says that in 1970, um, I think it's fewer than 1% of the population um, openly professed to be Christians. Mm. Um, today, they list that as over 100 million wow. uh, people across China profess faith in Christ. Some people think that number is too high. Some people will put it lower at 70 or 80 billion or million, not billion, billion. <laughs> but um, regardless, the point is, um, if you do the math, that's a 60-fold growth wow. of uh, professing believers across China. And so there's no way for it to be hidden. You can't have that many Christians in Chinese society today. And it, for it really to be hidden, most Chinese have met a Christian at this point. Um, they may not understand the gospel or have heard the gospel, but it's very rare that you meet uh, someone from mainland China today who truly has never met a Christian wow. or come across a church in some shape or form. Wow. One of the things that that's struck me and that even just hearing the history of kind of how the house church came around um, really makes sense because I just kept getting this feeling I was talking to my wife as I was reading I was like I feel like um there's a part of my experience as a believer in faith that like this ministered to that like I don't mm -hmm. find in other places and I was like it feels like there had to be like a specific kind of lived um ex experience that that informed mm. um what was mm. written and uh, you you say early in the, the introduction of the book, you say, if we uh, want revival in our communities, then let us learn from those uh, being revived. And I guess part of part of part of what that that stirs in me is like, man, like there is this um, there is this need to, to hear the, uh, the church globally, get, getting to experience this as I'm reading. And so maybe as we're processing that. Um, here, how do you think our understanding of revival in America could be strengthened by having a better understanding and connection uh, with the persecuted church in China? Uh, as you said earlier, like, give us a little bit more of like the the gift they have to give um, for mm. us. Mm. Yeah, I love that question. Um, well, I think one of the things. <laughs> uh, I could take this in so many different directions, but I think that um, more and more, the thing that I 
see as a really sharp contrast between the house churches in China and, you know, so much of how we think about these ideas of revival in the U.S. um, has to do with how we think about power and influence. Mm. And I think one of the, you can't look at the churches in China and the spread of the gospel across China over the last 70 years and not come away with an understanding that um, both power and influence are completely unnecessary for the Holy Spirit to work. Um, This is a church that has grown, as I said, just exponentially um, with shocking numbers. Um, And they have no political protections. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They have... um, no recognized platforms or institutions. Um, they truly have none of the things <laughs> that we so often think are necessary for communicating the gospel culturally to people. So I think then there's kind of a question of, well, what do they have? You know, what do they have um, that has just brought about this revival? I mean, I think on one level, they have the Holy Spirit, Mm. you know, and when the Lord decides to pour his spirit out, nothing can stop it. Truly nothing can stop it. And it would be good for us to remember that. But also I think there are, there are three distinctives, not of all house churches, because you don't have somewhere around a hundred million Christians and not have great diversity (laughs) and, you know, differences of opinion and praxis, but of the house churches I know, um, which are many across China, there are three things that really stand out to me that, that mark who they are and mark, um, just how they approach being the church and, you know, lead to these, the sense of revival, I think. And I think the first thing is um, they're very committed to the gospel of grace and they really understand the role of repentance Hmm. in um, the life of a Christian and not just individual Christians, but the church as a whole. It's amazing to me how often um, I hear pastors talk about their car ride in the backseat of a police car to, uh, you know, the police uh, center to be interviewed or interrogated, talking about that car ride as a chance and an opportunity for them to repent of their own idols Mm. um, as they prepare for uh, this interview with the police. And I just think they understand that when you're under pressure, um, culturally, if your heart isn't fresh in the gospel and fresh in its own repentance of your own idols, then, um, that pressure is going to produce a lot of really bad things. (laughs) It's going to produce bitterness. It's going to produce self-righteousness, Um, And so when that pressure comes, you have to understand what the gospel is about and not just um, turn to judging the world around you. Mm, That is incredible. (laughs) But I think the other thing that I often talk about is that 
they really understand that suffering is a part of our walk with Christ Mm. and that um, suffering is not just this, you know, bad thing that can happen once in a while, but in this world, because we live in a fallen world and because we're united to a savior who himself suffered greatly in this world, we have to anticipate that suffering will be a part of the Christian's call and a part of the church's public testimony and public witness in this world. And I think, you know, there's so much we can talk about (laughs) on that theme, Mm -hmm. but I think that again, um, that has been an an integral part of the house church's identity from Mm -hmm. its formation and really, um, is a part of the revival that takes place because, um, house church Christians are so able to lay down their rights and to lay down the things that would protect them for the sake of their cities and for the sake of the gospel around them. Wow. Uh, just a follow-up question to that. Um, but first, just thinking even just in what you say, because I think it don't want us to miss that, is even in asking that question, there's a way where it can feel like, Okay, like this is gonna be like the, the the secrets, you know, the secrets. Mm, yeah. And it was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, man, they mm-hmm. just really believe yeah. the tenets of our faith. Yeah. And the and like that is it's beautiful. Like, um, yeah, when you were talking about the car ride, like it just gave me chills. It was just like, wow, like the kind of, um, yeah, just just taking Jesus at his word, like is is mm-hmm. part of what that felt. Um. I think another opportunity to learn from, because what I'm imagining, you spoke a little bit before. I forget the like the the whole name, but the the state church essentially. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's a long name. (laughs) Yeah, but um, the I'm curious of the relationship because because you say they have a different understanding of how power and influence affect affects the spread of the gospel. I think what we hear culturally a lot more, you know, in America is this kind of. protection of you know the church and our the way we kind of our like christian culture that we do here and like that this is like Mm -hmm, a necessity mm -hmm, um mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how uh how can we i guess kind of divorce those things maybe like teasing that out a little bit more what is there what would you say that the relationship uh if we were to make that a you know that a political entity uh between the house church and um, the the state church? Is it just as simple as, you know, hey, we don't, like, are they trying to change it? Are they trying to, or is it just like, we're not operating in that system? Um, mm-hmm, what, what's mm-hmm. the general disposition there and how they respond? Well, I think, again, it's varied. Um, I think, though, I I don't think there's a whole lot of space for them to try to change the state church or the system. I mean, part of that is just China is essentially a totalitarian state. Mm. Um, These, you know, the, the individuals involved, uh, their rights are, there are, are shaky Mm -hmm. (laughs) at, at times and the church, if, if it's not registered with the state church, it has no rights. It has no political protections. Um, it is 
it is an illegal entity if it is not within the state church. So there's not a lot of space for them to try to change the structures or to change the state church. And I do think that is, I often like to talk about the similarities between China and the U.S. There are still very, very big differences. And that is one of the big differences is that um, we live in a participatory democracy and they don't, right? Mm -hmm. So there are some questions that we have to ask ourselves about how we participate that are always going to look fundamentally different from how it looks in China. That being said, I think that um, a lot of the house churches I know are very actively involved in serving their cities. They're very actively involved in things that here in America, we would call either mercy ministry or social justice issues. Mm. Um, they aren't, you know, even though they're not able to engage the political process in China really, or, or the political structures, that doesn't mean that they've checked out and removed themselves from the realities of their city. Mm. Um, they really often have this perspective that the church is the best gift they can give their cities. Mm. And there's one pastor, his name is uh, Wang Yi, and he's currently in prison for nine years uh, in China. But he talks a lot about how um, part of the call's church to suffer is a call to share in the burdens mm -hmm. of their city and to share in the burdens of their local context. So I think, you know, even though the political options are not very open to them, um, they definitely, they're, they're seeking to be engaged in their, the surrounding issues around them in ways that are often just really remarkable given the limitations that are put onto them. Mm. You know, it, to bring up these similarities um, and differences between kind of the different contexts that we're in, um, I kind of want to stay in that space because in the the Faith in the Wilderness, what I heard really clearly was these pastors calling out very directly and very specifically things within the Chinese culture that they believe are pulling their people away from faithfulness to mm -hmm. God. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. um, can you just highlight, man, what are some of, because every culture has it. We all have our idols. We all have things that are unique to our situatedness. And so what are some of those things in China? And then maybe, because you spend time in both contexts, how do you see some of those same things here in the States? Yeah. Well, your average pastor in China, persecution is a reality. And, you know, he probably has been called in and he's probably had time with the authorities being questioned. That being said, that's probably not like the main issue that he's dealing with in his church. You know, the main issues that he's dealing with in his church are his congregants love for money <laughs> and material yeah. gain. They're concerns about their kids and, um, you know, how to get their kids into the best schools and how to get their kids, uh, put them on the path to success. Um, and he's probably dealing with people in his church, 
uh, struggling on issues of sexuality and gender. I mean, the things that they're dealing with are far more common to all the same things that we're dealing with here than I think we often think about. And so I think one of probably, I think why a lot of people resonate with, uh, their words so much is because of that sense of, okay, they're not dealing with stuff that's so far mm-hmm. removed <laughs> from yeah. what I'm dealing with here, but they're so faithful in calling it out. You know, yeah. they're so faithful in um, calling out people's idols and the idols of their hearts and pointing people to Jesus as the only one who can satisfy those longings that we try to, you know, fill with idols. Um, So I think, you know, Chinese churches and Chinese Christians are, they're, they're people like you and me, (laughs) you know, like their problems are all the same, very human problems that we deal with that are far more boring and mundane than persecution. And one of the things that I love about um, faith in the wilderness in particular is how much persecution is understood as just one of many Mm -hmm. problems that the Christian might face in their life. And so when they talk about suffering, they're not just talking about this us versus them type thing of, oh, these people are out there to hurt us. They've been able to understand, um, you know, living in a culture hostile to the gospel in this bigger picture of suffering and how we think about suffering generally, you know, and in this bigger reality than just, you know, the world is against us. Um, I think that's where so much of the power of it comes from Mm -hmm. is, is able to see how small things in our lives can also connect to these big questions that there's not this wall between um, the reality people face under persecution and the reality I face when my best friend is diagnosed with cancer, mm-hmm. you know, they're not the same, but they are connected in this idea of being unified with a suffering savior. Yeah. I think one of the things that I don't know if it was intentional or not, but one of the things that I was so encouraged by, um, anytime I get this chance to sort of interact with Christians from a different cultural context, it happened during the pandemic. There was a lot of race issues here, and we mm-hmm. met with mm-hmm. a lot of African-American pastors um, to just talk through the issues. And um, then in your book, a similar thing happened, which is, yes, the the specifics of the suffering might be different. The specifics of the circumstances mm-hmm. might be different. But the encouragement that comes from realizing we all really believe in the same thing, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. – like, you know, like we all read this Bible so often, right? We, we What's highlighted is how different we are, all these differences that we have, or how all these people can read, you know, you can read your Bible and come up with totally different conclusions than this. And then that's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, in the media at least, or wherever, it's kind of parroted as this, you know, thing that should chip away at our com- confidence. But what I'm actually so encouraged by is like, I'm reading your book. They're quoting other Chinese pastors. They're quoting a, di- a whole different kind of, you know, maybe stream of literature yeah. and, and understanding mm-hmm. of the Bible. And then on the other hand, you know, we we are reading all these people and we come to the same conclusions, just like what we've been talking about with suffering. It's like, 
you know, I Luther, right? You go back to this Western tradition, and Luther is talking about how suffering is absolutely fundamental and necessary for sanctification in the mm-hmm. Christian life. And they're speaking about suffering in the exact same way. And I'm like, oh my gosh. God is real. Do you know what I'm yeah. trying to yeah. say? Yeah. It's like this yeah. really yeah. <laughs> huge encouragement that e- e- even though we come we come from different backgrounds, we're facing very different, you know, levels of persecution and suffering and everything like that. We're all landing in the same place and that is just so it was just so encouraging to me. And so maybe to just take that example of suffering and ask what lessons have you learned from the Chinese house church in terms of how they see suffering and how um, we can gain a better mm. grasp on our union with Christ and our union mm. with who God is through that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I definitely don't separate myself out from average American faith. Sure. When I talk about these things, it's been a huge um, both challenge to my own faith and opportunity for me to grow Mm. working on this book. Um, It's interesting because, so I've, I've worked with these pastors for a long time Mm -hmm. and prior to 2020, um, anytime my friends or colleagues would say suffering was a necessary part of the Christian life. Right everything in me would just react to it, you mm. know, and I, it, because it's my job, I'd kind of just politely nod my head and sure. say, Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, right. I'm not sure. I really know what that means. <laughs> sure. And, and I think I also would just feel, have this feeling of like, well, I'm not really suffering. Like, right. you know, does that mean I'm not really following with Christ? Mm. 2019 into 2020, hit. And that was an incredibly difficult time for me and my family personally, Mm. for a lot of different reasons. And everything that I'd been working on just became real Mm. all all of a sudden. And, um, and it made me realize how much Americans are allergic to the topic of suffering. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We do suffer. It is a part of our life. You can't live in this world and not suffer. Mm -hmm. It's a part of reality living in a broken world. Right. But so much of American culture is bent Mm -hmm. on convincing ourselves that that's not the case Mm -hmm. and that we can somehow escape it and or rise above it or just, you know, entertain ourselves out of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I don't think that like you can only maintain that illusion for so long right Mm -hmm. reality will break in Mm. and so i think that um just even for me personally um going through 2019 and 2020 and and even into 2021 um really taking the time to work on this book and this content and really think through what do okay what do they mean Mm. when they say we're united with Christ. And that means, you know, our lives will be a part of suffering. I think there are two parts of it. I think, um, you know, scripture promises us essentially (laughs) that Mm. we will suffer. You Mm -hmm. can't read Matthew (laughs) and not ask yourself like, 
like it says that we will suffer. You can't read Paul. I mean, Paul talks about how we fill up the afflictions of Christ. And, and frankly, until I started working on this material, like, I don't think I'd ever thought about Mm. what that verse really meant, Mm. you know? And so thinking, so there's that part, right? There's the part where we say like, okay, being united with a suffering saver involves these things. It doesn't necessarily always look the same. Mm. Suffering can be very, it can be so varied in Mm. this world. You might feel suffering because of persecution. You might feel suffering because of cancer. You might endure suffering just by trying to put to death sin in your life. Mm -hmm. You know, you might feel suffering by being faithful to a church and going to church feels miserable (laughs) because we're all broken people. You know, (laughs) but like you can't escape this reality. You can't Mm. escape this reality. And so I think there's a power in actually naming it and talking about it and 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 that's what not just the Chinese, but as you said, so much of both global Christianity and also in our own country in America, minority Christianity right. does in a way that um, for me as a white woman coming from a majority culture background, like we just don't have this vocabulary um, in a way that's helpful, <laughs> you yeah. know. Um, so just talking about it, being open about it, acknowledging the reality and what scripture and the gospel, like there are just abundant riches in scripture Mm. to say like, yes, you suffer and you will suffer, but look, here is how you endure that. You know, I think connected with that though, is that, um, we don't, you know, it's not just a suffering savior that we're united to. Mm. We are also united to a savior who is reigning in reality Uh today in his fullness. And we don't stop in the suffering. Mm -hmm. We have a destination. We Mm. have an end goal. We have an eschatology. We know where we're going. And that was one of the things I really wanted to build into the book was a movement to start with an acknowledgement of the reality. That's why we start in the theme of brokenness, but we end the last chapter is on revelation. And the last chapter is intended to help remind us that, um, while it's helpful and important to acknowledge the suffering we have in this life, you can't stop there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You have to see where you're going and you have to lift your eyes because, um, Christ is no longer suffering mm-hmm. and we will have an end to our suffering as well. And I think both uh, the ability to talk about suffering, but also like just their firm belief in the reign of King Jesus over this world mm. is and, and our union to that. We are united to the King who rules this world. Um, there's so much power in these ideas as we think about um, living faithfully as individuals, but also mm-hmm. just being the church in our society. And I think so much of American Christianity right now is so fearful. And I think part of why we're fearful is because one, we don't know how to suffer. And two, we really don't understand that we are united to the reigning King and nothing right. can take that away and nothing can challenge his reign over this world. Amen. 
It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. It's so, <laughs> like, so good. Like, hopefully, I'm over here. Like, I got pages full of notes. I do, too. Um, mm. And, like, there's this, this, this picture of we serve a suffering Savior. And so we will suffer. We live in a world that does not want to walk in the way of the kingdom. And so we're going to experience the consequences of that. But that's mm-hmm. not the end of the story. Yeah. yeah. Like we live with yeah. so much hope. Like you say, we serve a risen king who is reigning, whose reign will never end or be defeated. Um, yeah. And how much hope. And that, like, as I'm reading through these essays, like I get, th- I'm getting like this punchiness and hope is like, y'all are holding on to this earthly stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And where mm-hmm. hope is mm-hmm. in that, we're getting up from the grave. Our hope is that loss is not really lost because we have Jesus. Our hope is that it's death is not the end. It's just mm. like, yes, and amen. Amen and amen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. As I was reading through the 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 essays reminded me of preaching that I heard in the African American church. Mm-hmm. And so like these 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 themes of we're we're suffering. Like we're going through um in some sense I believe persecution in our own country but just racism and Jim Crow mm-hmm. and just the effects of all mm-hmm. of our history. But yet our hope is in what is coming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Our hope is that death is not the end. Our hope is that Jesus is with us. Like the preaching and the music. And so I just wonder, just out of curiosity, um, is there any inspiration that is given to Chinese pastors from the stories of African-American Christians in the U.S.? That I, I love that question. I don't know of any specifically. Um, well, let me rephrase that. I do know of many house church pastors who are, who are very aware of the history in America. Um, and I think do, I don't know how many like writings they have access to. Um, so I don't know that there's a lot of immediate cross pollination. I do think that your observation is, is so, so interesting. Like I've, I've been thinking a lot about this recently, actually, of just like, I would, I'm dying for someone (laughs) out there to write something about this comparison because I've thought of it as well. And I think that, um, I, I think that there are a lot of similarities in a couple of ways. I think that, um, just that understanding that, um, power and cultural power are not necessary for the work of the gospel Mm. is like a huge, uh, commonality between these two traditions and also the understanding that, and and I mean, this is getting spicy, but (laughs) that, that not all churches are true churches, <laughs> you know, yeah, that, yeah, or, or yeah, that yeah. essentially that like you can have people in your society who are claiming the name of Christ, but who are actively harming you. I mean, so much of the history of persecution in the house churches is at the hands of the state churches mm. and state church Christians harming house church Christians. Yeah. And I think mm. that also mm. mirrors so much of the history yeah. of the black church in America and wrestling through that reality, but not just wrestling through it, but, but calling it out, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and saying, this is not the gospel. This is not what the true church looks like. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know of a lot of like immediate, uh, connections, but I see the connections and I've, I've just been like hoping that someone <laughs> will else will see it. Cause I don't know. I don't know. Like 
enough to feel confident to write something myself on like that connection, but I'm hoping someone else will. So, yeah. you know, hey, Anna, if you want to write something together, we can make this happen. Y'all shouldn't <laughs> laugh, dude. I'm seeing the fireworks now. Because <laughs> it, it is this, um, and I think the commonalities to me were like, when people don't have power, when people are being oppressed for reasons that are dishonoring to the to the to them as image bearers, like yeah. you see, like these root issues, whether they they're manifested in different ways. Sure. The response yeah. to me, yeah. seeing the the similarity in our hope is not in this world. Mm-hmm. Our hope mm-hmm. is in the world to come. Our hope is yeah. in Jesus. Like the, like this this like clenching onto the truth of the gospel to me in a way that was really clear. I was like, man, I've heard this before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like I've sung yeah. these songs, you know, yeah. like, yeah. 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 It was it's really, cool. it was really fun to see the connection. So yeah, Hannah, if you want to do something. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I, really, I really have like, it, I, I could go back in my planner and, and like show you all the times I've been like, can anyone write something on this? <laughs> 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 <So>. <laughs> Speaking, maybe changing the subject a little bit, um, what has the response to the book been? Um, I I guess, do you have any stories you could share of how it's impacting the church, both in the U.S. or globally? Have you, has anybody interacted with it within China itself? And what has that looked like? You know, yeah, I'd love to just hear about that a little more. Yeah, I'd say the response has been really well. I mean, so it's been really interesting. We've had this vision of publishing material like this for a long time, and it's taken many years to really convince publishers (laughs) um, to to, to go with us on it. Um, It's taken just a lot of laying groundwork and building Mm. a foundation and Mm. and being able to really say, we think there really would be a response to this if someone would publish this. Um, we're really, really thankful for, for both of our publishers, both. So faith in the wilderness came out with Lexum and the other book, faithful disobedience came out with IVP. And, Mm. um, I I really like, I can't stress this enough. Both of those publishers took just very significant risks Mm. (laughs) publishing these books because, um, there was no demonstrable market uh, before these books. So we are really happy. Um, the response has been just really positive. Mm. And I think so much of it is because I think a lot of people just are are longing to be reminded of the gospel from a, of a new perspective or kind of a fresh voice, you know, that that doesn't feel as entangled (laughs) in a lot of the things American Christianity is entangled in right now. I don't know that I have any kind of like, you know, super dramatic stories, but it has been really encouraging just to hear um, from different churches that have engaged the book, different individual readers. Um, We've had, we've heard from several different uh, seminary professors who have begun using the book. And actually what's really cool is it's being used in really different ways in Mm. seminary settings. So um, we know of a professor who's using it in a, you know, history of Chinese Christianity course that obviously makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. But we also have heard from a professor up in the Northwest who's using it in a preaching class um, Mm -hmm. just because Mm -hmm. the 
origin of the content yeah. comes from right. preaching. Yes. And he thought that this was just an excellent resource to help American seminary students think about preaching and, and what that might look like. Um, globally, so this book uh, hasn't necessarily had a huge global distribution yet. We're, we're starting to kind of think through those questions. But in general, the idea of sharing uh, the voices of the Chinese house churches with the global church is something that I think is really, we really want to lean into that Mm. more and more, especially uh, helping to make writings like this available to other persecuted contexts. Mm. Um, It's really on my heart to help other persecuted churches learn from the Chinese house churches instead of hearing from us Western Christians yeah. who don't know how to be persecuted. Yeah. Um, because I think, you know, the Chinese churches, you know, they've endured, not only endured, they've grown yeah. under 70 years of persecution. They have so much more to say on the topic than any North American Christian mm, possibly mm. has to say on the topic. So we have done some things uh, that I probably shouldn't go into the details of for security reasons, sure. okay, yeah. trying to help make um, writings uh, from house church pastors available in as particularly in uh, most majority Muslim context. Yeah. And um, those have been really, really exciting mm. projects and initiatives and ones that we want to lean into more and more. Yeah, that's awesome. I, another question in terms of stories, a little bit different. As you spent uh, time reading and editing uh, a lot of uh, the book and some of these essays, I know you even said some of the um, content um, wasn't wasn't all able to make it in. Obviously, that's kind of the can be the sad part of editing mm-hmm. sometimes. Uh, just curious, what is, were there any personal, just like favorite stories um, of yours? Maybe even ones that like you were really wanting to make it in the book and then it didn't and you were like, oh, but like this is your time to share it now. You know, like, um, we just love to hear that. Yeah. Um, not from the book, but I will tell you one of my all-time favorite stories. Um, so there was a church that was under significant persecution and um, there was a team of house church pastors from other cities that went um, to try to encourage that church. Essentially that church's leadership had all been arrested. And so pastors from across the country flew to that city um, to try to care for the church in the wake of this event. And um, one of the wives of these pastors also went, they were all in an apartment together and the authorities came and essentially, they didn't arrest all these visiting pastors, but they essentially forcibly removed them from the city. They said, you need, you have to go back to your, your cities. You can't stay here. Mm. The amazing thing though, is uh, the wife of one of these pastors happened to be in the bathroom Mm. (laughs) when this happened. Mm. And this is such an ax moment. She could hear what was going on outside. And so she just stayed in the bathroom (laughs) and um, the authorities put all the pastors on a bus, took them to the airport, 
got them on planes, sent them back, and they never thought to check the whole apartment. And so she was able to stay and just minister to this church and care for this church in Mm. the midst of suffering. But not only that, she's really out of that developed a huge heart for caring for churches and especially um, families of pastors who are arrested. Um, and so her main ministry right now is is caring for families of, of incarcerated and arrested pastors. Mm. And it just, it makes me think so much of a lot of the things you read in Acts where God will just hide something mm. from the eyes that might want to find it and harm it and just protect it. And, um, but I also think connected to that, um, there are so many stories from women in the house church, and that's something we're trying to turn to highlight more and more. Mm. I think one of the very, um, appropriate criticisms that faith in the wilderness got was that all of the writing in it is from, from men. And um, there were quite a few people who were saying we really wished there were women included in this book. And um, we hear that and and we really, we have lots of stories from women in the house church and increasingly we're going to be highlighting those, their writing more and more as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I think it's to see um, how the Holy Spirit works in spite of all the boundaries, um, works in diverse ways. You didn't. Who would think that being in the bathroom at the right time mm-hmm. <laughs> could provide an amazing <laughs> <Yep>. ministry opportunity? <laughs> yep. You know, and it just—it's—it's uh, yep. <laughs> yep. it's example after example of the ways in which the things that we hold on to and think make change really aren't the the way change comes. Change comes through the Lord. Mm. Um, yeah. And what is true is that we live in a fallen world. And we will experience suffering. And some of that suffering is oppression from governmental authorities in some really significant ways. Um, And to read these stories, what I'm reminded of is that we don't run from that suffering. We embrace it because we have a suffering Savior. But that's not the end of the story because our suffering Savior is also a risen Savior who is reigning today. Mm -hmm. And so our hope is not in things of the world. Our hope is in Him. And our hope is that our Savior is returning and we will reign with Him. And so Mm -hmm. we look forward to that day and release these these light these light and momentary afflictions as Paul calls them. Yeah. And we don't look to what is temporary. We look to what is eternal. Um, Amen. And uh, I'm grateful, Hannah, for faith in the wilderness yes. of pointing us towards the things that are eternal. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Now, Hannah, if the people want to connect with you and the work you do, what are some of the best ways to do that? Yeah. Well, you can find us on social media. Um, you can follow either our House Church Theology or China Partnership or myself. I'm Hannah Nation. Um, we're on all the platforms. We're not on TikTok. <laughs> all, all of the older platforms we're on. <laughs> so, um, But one of the best things to do is to head over to uh, housechurchtheology.com and get on our mailing list. We have so many more things coming out. Um, We already have our next books in the works and um, we'll definitely be announcing some more projects coming up soon. So yeah. Now, do you have a podcast too that's coming out? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So one of those projects, one of those projects, thank you for reminding me. Um, We're doing a podcast. This is our first time attempting this. So 
we'll see how it goes. But um, it's we've named it very simply. It's called the House Church in China. Um, we are over the course of four episodes. We are talking about the story of a pastor's wife who spent two weeks in jail Mm. and um, just really digging into her personal story. We had the absolute privilege and honor of having access to a very lengthy interview that she gave after she was released. And um, we're turning that into really a four-part story of just who she is, um, what her motivations throughout this experience were, and what we um, in North America have to learn from her experience and from her church's commitments. So we're excited. I think I think it'll be good, but we'll see. Yeah, no, that <laughs> so. sounds really exciting. Um, and it, for our listeners, all of what Hannah mentioned, the ways that you connect and information about the podcast will be in the show notes. Thank you again, Hannah. You have blessed us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really great to be here. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This episode is produced by Chelsea Conway with editing and support from The Good Podcast Company. If you're a regular follower of the podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can message us on social. Check the show notes for more information on how best to connect with us as well as connect with our guests and ways to support their work. See y'all next time.